Well, turn with me in the Word of God to the 120th Psalm, Psalm 120, as we are continuing to be at a time in between series. God willing, we will pick up with the Belgic Confession of Faith here in the next month as we begin our Sunday school and catechism class season. Uh, But for now, we are sort of in between. And so we'll be looking at Psalm 120, which is the first of a group of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120 through 134. So notice with me, Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. Let's go to him and ask for his help this evening. Our Father, we thank you for Psalm 120, for the words that this says to us that we know were inspired by the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would see more of you and more of Christ in this psalm this evening, that we would see how we are to respond to you and how we are to trust and to rest in you as our Lord and as our Savior. And we pray all these things in Christ's name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, perhaps this is not the first time you've heard of the Psalms of Lament, uh, Psalms of Ascent, rather. Uh, as far as a group of Psalms goes, it's probably the most famous or one of the most famous as we come to the Psalter. And we can ask exactly what does it mean to ascend? Now, boys and girls, that's probably not a word that we use very often. We don't usually say, I'm going to go ascend here or ascend there. Essentially, it means to go up. And that's not really giving us any help here. Songs to go up, but to go up where? To go up to do what? Well, it seems that these were psalms that were sung by pilgrims on their way to go up to Jerusalem. As they go from the flat areas around Uh, the capital city of the people of God, up into the hills, up into the mountains, up to Jerusalem, they would sing these psalms. And we see, it seems, that these psalms were put in order in our Psalter for a reason. Now, oftentimes, we aren't entirely sure why a psalm is in a particular order. We can kind of have a general idea, but with some psalms, it seems to make sense that one goes before the other. So notice with me Psalm 120, verse 5. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. And so the psalmist here is far away from the place of God's special dwelling with his people. But then look at 121.1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? And there's that almost expectation, that movement of coming to the hills and seeing them and understanding that your help comes from within those hills, that your help comes from the Lord who dwells there. And then 122 and verse 2. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And so it seems to make sense that these were psalms that were sung by pilgrims as they went from far away, perhaps in some cases, from the place where God dwelt with his people to standing within the very gates of Jerusalem. And as we'll see in uh, weeks and months even to come in some of these psalms, even within the very temple itself. And so we can ask at this point, how does this help us to know these things? How does it help us to know that these were songs that they would sing as they went up to Jerusalem? Because we know that we ourselves, very few of us anyway, have ever gone up to Jerusalem at least physically. We know that's not part of the feasts and cycles of religion that God has given to us as a new covenant people of God. So what exactly does this do for us? Well, brothers and sisters, we are to remember that our life is a pilgrimage as well. 
that we are pilgrims on this earth. And I don't mean pilgrims as in what we think of at Thanksgiving time as they came to America. It's oftentimes the case for me anyway when I hear the word pilgrim that I think of those people with strange hats with buckles on them and all sorts of different things that are going on around that first Thanksgiving. But really what we mean here as pilgrims, as a pilgrimage, is those who are on a journey, those who are not yet home. Those who are looking for something that they have not yet received. And so in that sense, we are truly pilgrims as we go to our heavenly home, as we go towards Zion, and we can ask, how do pilgrims live? And these psalms really help us there. You'll note we'll say verse 1 for the end as it really ties up much of what's going on in Psalm 120. But we'll have three main points, three main headings this evening, each in turn deceit, discord, and distress. And we'll start with deceit in verses 2 through 4. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. And so we see, first of all, this psalmist, whoever he is, we aren't entirely sure, is calling out for God to deliver him. He's calling out in prayer to the only one who can truly save him. This helps us to see right from the beginning that this pilgrim life that we are on, these pilgrims in the ancient world and the pilgrims that we are today, can only exist by way of prayer. That our Christian life is one that can only exist by way of prayer. We think of Heidelberg 1.16 here. Why do Christians need to pray? And the answer is because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. And also because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God for these gifts and thank him for them. And we see here that this psalmist is praying out to God. He's crying out to God in his distress, in his agony, in the midst of a world that is often painful. In the midst of a world that is often opposed to him. In the midst of of a world that is often and always, we could say, sinful. And do you ever feel that tension of living in a sinful world? Of knowing that there is sin all around you and unfortunately even sin still remaining within you? It's something that we as Christians, we as believers, feel all the time. Something that we recognize to help us understand that this world as it is, is not our home. And his life is quite difficult, it seems here, as he's beginning this psalm with these words. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. It seems that he is surrounded by those who are lying about him, who are deceiving, who are treacherous, perhaps we could say in various ways, and he's tired of it. He recognizes that this is not how things ought to be, but this is how things are for him at this point in time. Perhaps we can think of what Peter says in 2 Peter 2, and if he rescued, meaning the Lord righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, the psalmist didn't have 2 Peter at this point. But he knew the same Lord that Peter was writing about. He knew the same one who would deliver and rescue his people, and he's turning to him because he recognizes that in this situation, as he's surrounded by these lies and these deceits, by all this treachery, by all this falsehood, by all these false accusations, that the only one he can truly turn to is his Lord himself. That he is truly dependent upon his God. And we are ultimately dependent as well, but we can know the one who isn't dependent on anyone or anything. And that's what gives us confidence. Even in the midst of a world that can often be painful and wicked and sinful, 
that can even say false things about us, that can be full of lies and deceit, as we recognize that we cannot control many of these things that are happening around us, we can know the one who does control the things that are happening around us. And in Christ, we have unending access to him. And so as we begin these Psalms of Ascent, as we begin to see what these pilgrims would do and what we are to do, we recognize that the pilgrim life is a life of prayer. And the specific prayer here is the deliverance from the lies and this deceit. From untrue words and accusations, it seems, we aren't given the entire context. We don't know exactly what it is that's going on or the details of what it is that's troubling the psalmist. But we can see he's just surrounded by it. He's praying for deliverance from these things. It's a pattern for us, brothers and sisters. Now we can know that, yes, we suffer in this life, and God has ordained for us to suffer in this life in many ways as he's continually remaking us into the image of Christ. We can pray for deliverance from these things as well. Deliverance from the evils and the wickedness of lies and deceit. And even as we have the full revelation of God and we understand even more clearly what is in ourselves, even as we understand more clearly the gospel, the salvation that Christ has earned for us, we can pray for God to take us away from evil and deceit and lies even within ourselves. And we can know that he will do it, that he will hear us. And so what God is calling us to do is to pray to your creator and your sustainer and your redeemer. Maybe that you are surrounded by these things at school or at the workplace or in the neighborhood or even within your very home. God is calling you to call out to him, to throw yourself upon him, to recognize that you are dependent and to recognize also, as we see here, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. We see in verses 3 and 4 this idea of what is going to happen to these deceitful tongues, these lying lips. What is the ultimate end and outcome for them? These liars' weapons are destructive, but the psalmist remembers that they are nothing compared to God's judgment itself. Nothing compared to God's judgment upon these sins. And we see here the psalmist didn't return lies and deceit upon those who were lying and deceiving him. He didn't use the sinful world's weapons against it, and neither ought we. But instead he waited on the Lord. He waited for the one he knew was in control, who he knew saw all things, who he knew was righteous and powerful. And he knew that these things would come to an end, even if he didn't see it within his very lifetime. God is calling us to do the same, brothers and sisters. To recognize that vengeance belongs to the Lord. To recognize that we are not called to use the sinful words and weapons of the world against it. As tempting as that might be. And I recognize as people lie about you and deceive you and slander you and give you false accusations, it's tempting to respond in kind. There is still sin within us that wants to respond that way. Even though Christ has lived and died and rose for us and we are clothed in his perfect righteousness and we are forgiven of our sins as we trust in him, and even though the same spirit that has raised Christ from the dead is at work within us, we still deal with sin day by day. God is calling us to look away from these things and to look to him as the one who can ultimately solve the things that we have in this life. Even as we are pilgrims on this earth, even as we are going towards our heavenly home and we have not yet arrived. And so this is the deceit he is dealing with. But we also see the discord he deals with in verses 5 through 7. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak... They are for war. And so we see a number of things within these verses. 
He's really expanding what this problem is. Not only is he surrounded by lies and deceit, but he's really expressing his identity, really, in this place as a sojourner. He is someone who is sojourning, who is dwelling temporarily. In verse 5, we see this word pop up, and it's a very pointed word in the Old Testament. We often hear of things about the sojourner, perhaps in the laws of Israel, as those who are somewhat outside, who are there but not really there. We can think of those, perhaps those most famous sojourners in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who dwelt in tents and would move around from place to place, who in one sense had a home and in another sense did not have a home, who had promises given to them that they did not fully see within their own lifetimes. Whatever the situation was of the psalmist, he sees himself in the same place. He sees himself as a sojourner. He sees himself as one who does not have a permanent home in which he dwells. As one who lives in tents, who is moving around, and yet he knows that God heard him. And brothers and sisters, it's tempting to think that this world as it is, is our home. It's tempting for us to think that this is all that there is, and that this is where our ultimate allegiance and our ultimate hope and our ultimate goals should lie. But we ought to recognize that we ourselves are pilgrims. That we are truly sojourners, as strange perhaps as that word may be to our ears, that we are sojourning here, that we are in this place, that God has placed us here, and he's given us many good things, and he's giving us his son, he's given us all the blessings in him, and yet in a very real sense we are still waiting. We are still not yet home. We are still seeking the final thing. Turn with me if you would, keep an, a finger in Psalm 120, but turn to the book of Hebrews and chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 perhaps speaks of this in a more clear way than anywhere else in all of Scripture. Hebrews 11, I begin reading in verse 8 down through verse 10. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Really, Abraham, or Abram as he was once called, is the ultimate picture of what a sojourner is to us in the Bible. He's the example of what we are in a very real sense. Boys and girls, if you've read or heard the story of Abraham, you know that although he was promised these wonderful things and these wonderful blessings from God, that he was promised descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens, that he was promised a land for his people who would come from him, that really all he had in his possession in his entire life was a plot of land to bury his wife. He was a sojourner. He was one who lived in tents and one who traveled about and one who had no permanent home on this earth, but he also knew what this promise pointed to. That ultimately the promise to give him a land, to give him all these blessings, was not pointing forward to the heavenly or the earthly promised land, as glorious and as great as that was, but to what that land pointed to in the first place. To the ultimate Zion, to the heavenly city, to the new Jerusalem. A pilgrim is a sojourner. A pilgrim is one who has no lasting home in this world, at least as it is now. But can we have no hope? Are we left there amidst those who are lying and deceiving, who are bringing discord into our lives, and we have no hope of ever really having a place? And the answer is no, certainly not. 
Notice with me verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So, brothers and sisters, all of you who are here this evening who are trusting in Jesus Christ, if you're feeling homesick, it's for a reason. You have been promised these things, even as these who went before us thousands of years ago have been promised. And we are still waiting these things, and we've received a wonderful inheritance. We've received the wonderful blessings of Jesus Christ, the one who has come and lived and died and risen again for us. And we know that he himself is made a city for us, that we will dwell with him in and for all eternity. We also know, don't we, that we are not quite there yet. And we are still pilgrims, we are still sojourners, we are still strangers in this land. And even as we see here back in Psalm 120, he is a stranger in a land of paganism. He says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. What he is saying there might not seem as obvious to us because we have really no idea where these places are, at least as far as most Americans don't. As we understand these things, it seems that Meshech was in the far north and Kedar was in the far south. And so he cannot literally physically be in these places at once. It'd be like us saying, I am in Flagstaff and I am in Tucson. Now, sometimes maybe the heat does things to us and we're confused. But we know we cannot be in both of those places at once if they're too far apart. It's the same here with these places that the psalmist mentions. So what exactly is he doing? What is he getting at here? Well, he is telling us that he is among pagans. He is among those who are far from God, who are far from even the courts of the Lord in Jerusalem, where he is ultimately going to end up on his pilgrimage, on his journey. He lives among the pagans far from Zion. In other words, he feels like he is far from the presence of God. Now, he recognizes that God hears him. And I'm sure he's not some sort of heretic who does not believe that God is in all places at all times. But he recognizes he's waiting for something even greater. That all the blessings he has are still pointing ahead to something even better. And he feels that tension and he feels that longing for something that he has not yet possessed in full, in complete totality. He's a homesick pilgrim, a homesick sojourner. And brothers and sisters, even though we have received even greater blessings, even though we have Jesus Christ himself who has come and we can look back on the redemption accomplished instead of looking ahead of the redemption that will be accomplished, we ourselves are in many of the same places. We still live on this earth. We are still, in a sense, far from the heavenly Zion, at least as we will see it on the last day. We are still far from the presence of God as we need it even now. God has given us these great blessings, but we are still waiting for something even greater, the fullness of these blessings to come to us. And I recognize in a congregation of this size, there are a variety of views about the end times, and we certainly don't want to get bogged down in that tonight, of all things. But no matter how we consider these things, no matter how we see redemptive history playing out from here to the end, we must all recognize that what we are ultimately looking for, the ultimate goal and glory, is not in a millennium, whatever it may be, but in the new heavens and the new earth. 
and not just in the new heavens and the new earth, but in the one who inhabits them. That perhaps we have lost sight in our debates over the different views of the millennium that our ultimate joy, our ultimate glory, our ultimate hope for ourselves and for all those and our loved ones in Christ who have gone ahead of us is to see God with our eyes. Our older theologians call this the beatific vision. This idea that somehow, some way, we will actually see God instead of only hearing from him and about him. That we will have this wonderful, intimate connection with him, this fellowship with him that we can scarcely even imagine now, even though we have the foretaste of it by the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. And can I stand up here and explain to you exactly how this works? How we see the God who cannot be seen? No. Can I tell you whether or not it's the actual rods and lenses and the light refracting in our eyes that's going to give us this vision of God, or whether it's something that's even deeper and even more incredible than that, I cannot. But we can know certain things. We can know that as God is drawing us to himself, that he himself is the ultimate blessing for us. That he gives himself to us, and that is what we are awaiting. And as he's longing here, this psalmist in Psalm 120, to be in the very presence of God, even as we long, he is surrounded by violence. He is surrounded by strife. He's surrounded by those who hate peace. He's seen here as longing for peace and surrounded by those who have violent desires. He says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And we can understand, can't we, boys and girls, how this could be a very precarious situation for him. This could be quite dangerous. Because there he is, he's far away from the presence of God in Jerusalem. He's far away, it seems, from his people. He's surrounded by those who are heathen, essentially, or pagans around him. He's outnumbered and outgunned, we can say, in in human terms. And these people want war, as he wants peace. And so what is his hope here? What is our hope? As we deal with this conflict in general, with persecution perhaps, or with just the general war that we must fight day by day against the world, the flesh, and the devil, these three enemies that each and every single one of them are enough to overpower us, where do we look? What do we do? What is the hope for pilgrims and sojourners in this land? Well, we see the answer to his distress. That's our third point, distress in verse 1. He begins this psalm in verse 1 by saying, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Now, that seems maybe very simple and short to our ears. Something perhaps that we read this verse again and again as we've read through the Bible perhaps multiple times and through the Psalms multiple times, and we don't give it much thought. We don't really consider what it means that he has answered the psalmist. But brothers and sisters, we are called to recognize that we are pilgrims directed toward God. As much as we feel in our bones, in the very core of our being, that we are homesick, that we are not just left in our homesickness without direction, but that God himself is bringing us to his own very presence, that God himself is drawing us through Christ to himself, that our sole dependence on God in the hour of our distress is exactly what we should be looking for, that he himself is the only one who can save us and rescue us and give us a home and fulfill the desires and the tensions and the longings that we feel that have not yet been fulfilled. That we have these longings within us for the one who will ultimately fill them. And he will hear us even now. Our lives as pilgrims are directed toward our God. 
They're directed toward our Savior. Perhaps we could say in another way that we live Godward in this life. And sure, we know that our eyes are often tempted to go to other things and to other hopes and to other ends and to other things that we think can fulfill us and can erase this tension we feel in our lives. Whether it's some sort of sin or some sort of good thing that we make the ultimate good thing. And it can be any number of things, really. But ultimately, only God himself is the one in whose direction we should be looking. And so God is calling you to look to your creator and redeemer as you sojourn on this fallen earth. To look to Jesus Christ most clearly as the one who has come and lived and died and rose again for you. And as you're trusting in him and you have the beginning of these wonderful blessings, this wonderful, great, glorious inheritance, to know that he will bring you all the way to the end. And even now, he will hear you as you are dwelling in the midst of those who are deceitful and who are destructive and who are desiring violence and destruction. And our lives are lives of prayer because humanly speaking, we're vulnerable. We are, in a very real sense, sojourners among violent pagans and some of the most violent pagans even live within ourselves. Our indwelling sin and the desires of our hearts that are often evil and wicked. And we know if we were left to ourselves for even a millisecond, we'd be instantly crushed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. But if you're here this evening and you're trusting in Christ, you are not left to yourself. You are not left alone in the midst of this sojourning, not left alone in the midst of this pilgrimage. You have Jesus Christ. That in him you have the Father and the Holy Spirit at work for you and in you. God is calling you to cry out to him. To cry out to him whether things are going well or not, whether you feel the homesickness deep within your soul or whether you only feel it around the edges of yourself. To recognize that only in him do we have answers. Only in him do we have hope. As a Puritan once said many, many years ago, there is no sin in complaining to God, but much wickedness in complaining about him. Now we might want to qualify that a little bit about how we complain to God. But overall, I think that's a very true and helpful statement. We know there are many things in this life that are hard. Many things in this life that cause us to grieve and to mourn and to cry out and to ask why. God is calling us to take these things to him. To know that the one who has not spared his only begotten son, but given him for us, will certainly hear us as we cry out to him in our pain and confusion, our grief and our homesickness, in our desires that have not been fulfilled, in our longings that we are still longing for. And know that the Lord answers us even as he answered the psalmist. If you're trusting in Christ, no matter what you feel, no matter what your emotions are telling you, no matter what your experiences are telling you, the Lord hears you. Even in the midst of Meshach or Kedar, even among lying lips and deceitful hearts, even among those who are for war when you are for peace, the Lord hears and will answer. And Christ has earned for you the city. He has earned for you the place that you are going to. We know the gospel encompasses many things. And it brings many things to us. Perhaps one thing we need to remember more and more as the days go by is that the gospel comes to us and brings us Christ and all of his benefits and that includes the end where we will go. 
the end of all things, where we will see him face to face, we will dwell with him forever. And so what is Psalm 120 calling you to do in the midst of this strange language and these places we've never been and this pilgrimage we've never actually physically been on ourselves? Well, it's calling you to recognize that you are a pilgrim, that you are a sojourner, that you are not home yet, that you, if left to yourself, are completely outmatched, that you and your homesickness are homesick in the right way because you are not yet where you will be, but your God is with you even now. That in Jesus Christ, he hears you. That in Jesus Christ, he answers you and rescues you and that he will ultimately bring you to himself. And you are called to rest in your Savior. Even when you feel the tensions of this pilgrim life, even when you feel the homesickness crawling in around you. To rest in Christ and to know that he has you. The psalmist begins by knowing that God will answer him, but he still suffers throughout this psalm. But the psalmist also knows that his only way of having these desires met is in the presence of God himself. In the special presence of God with his people. And it is the same with us. So pilgrims and sojourners, gaze at your Savior. Look to him as the one who will ultimately fulfill all your needs, who will erase all the tensions that you feel, who will take away the homesickness and make you truly home one day in the new heavens and the new earth. And know that he's here with you even now. That he hears you and rescues you even now, and you'll be in his very presence soon. We are pilgrims, we are sojourners, but we know that we are directed towards God and that he has a hold of us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for not only Psalm 120, but for all the psalms of ascent. We thank you, Lord, for the psalms as a whole as they give voice to many of the things that we feel, that we experience in our lives, that we are sometimes wondering if we can even say these things out loud. We know, Lord, that you have given us these inspired words as a help to us and as a way to point ourselves back to you and to our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for the way that these point even to Christ who was to come and who has come now. We ask, Lord, that you'll be with us as we experience frustration and deceit and discord, as we experience the homelessness and the feelings of restlessness as we are in this world. You will continually remind us of what you have for us and the fact that you yourself are our home. And we pray these things in Christ's name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.